All right, well, I hope you're doing well this afternoon. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 22 in our study of David's life. We, uh, we're in part 7 of this series. It's one of those series where you just have to sort of be led along this path. There's so much in David's life that, my goodness, we could talk endlessly. And uh, what we want to do is just be instructed uh, through his life, through the realization that here is an ordinary man in David who has a heart for a very extraordinary God. And each of these installments in the life of David over and over just press us into uh, this amazing God and his love for his people and the way he works in David's life. And there's so much to gain from looking at uh, the ups and the downs. And then tonight we'll, we're going to look at one of the low points or maybe uh, certainly one of the lowest points in David's life. But it would be so good for us to look at the way David navigates through the difficulty and pain that he feels in his heart. So let's pray together and then we'll look at uh, this section of David's life. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now you give us ears to hear, Lord, that you would make this scripture come alive for us this evening. We know that it's here for a very great purpose. That, Lord, you have recorded all of these words through your ser servant David for a reason. And we'd like to glean in that field tonight. So will you help us, Lord? Help us through the power and work of your Spirit. May He work mightily among us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to a point in David's life where uh, he's gone through the uh, experience with Bathsheba. And then last week we sort of looked at the aftermath. And we were spending our time talking about this issue of consequences and how we uh, deal with consequences and how God's grace is working alongside consequences, and those two things don't uh, conflict with each other. They simultaneously work. And now, tonight, we are going to pick back up and, and see that we're at a point in David's life where we begin to see the results of age and pressure. David is worn. I mean, life has taken a toll on him, to say the least. If you uh, just... Look at some of the, the sequences uh, in the last couple of chapters. In chapter 18, his son Absalom, the son that ran him out of the kingdom that we talked about last week, his favorite son, the son that he was loved so much and hoped that one day would, would take the reins of his kingdom. But that wasn't God's plan. But that son died at the hands of Joab and David says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I don't think I've ever been in a situation with a parent who lost a child who wasn't crying out, wishing that it was them instead. And David is just expressing this great brokenness in the loss of his son. Then a couple chapters later in chapter 21, 
uh, we see some circumstantial things going on in David's life. The Bible says that there was a famine in the days of David for three years and year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. So he's lost his son. He's devastated by that. He's reeling from that in the midst of that. The people that he's charged to care for and love and protect are suffering greatly because there's a, a drought that's led to a severe famine that's lasted for three years. And then in chapter 21, verse 15, the Scripture says, On top of all that, the Philistines were at war again with Israel, and David and his servants went with him down to fight against the Philistines, and David grew faint. This mighty warrior who, when we, when we met him on the rooftop of the palace just prior to his sin with Bathsheba, he was mighty. He had a great army. He was in control. Things were, were going his way. He was feared by every nation and people. And now he's faint. He's just growing faint. So after the loss of a son, the suffering of famine, and the weariness of battle, we're reminded that David is only human. And a person can only take so much. You know, we have to remember, you, it's very easy to, to start reading about David and thinking and talking about David and put him up on a pedestal and begin to separate him from uh, just me or you. Or, but David, David has reached his, his limits, and he can't, he can't take much more. He's beginning to, to crack around the edges. We want to remember that Jesus is the template for who we're meant to be. David is a reflection of how it really is. I think we are in error when we try to make David the template. We, I, I've tried to remind you over and over and over and over through this series that it's very important that as we're studying the Word and we're, we're gaining wisdom and insight into the Scriptures that we're placing ourselves rightly in the story. Jesus is always the template. David, in the midst of all these things going wrong, is a reflection of how it really is. So, so the value in what we're going to talk about tonight is for me and you to realize that this is, what's, this is what life is like in this fallen world in which we live in. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be bewildered when, when things are terrible and difficult. And uh, we should just understand that that's life in a fallen world. And here's David. Remember. It's so beneficial that this is one of the reasons we went right into this study is because we just came through a study through the book of Judges. And over and over in the book of Judges, we saw that God would, would do great things in the lives of these judges when the Spirit of God would come upon them. But in the life of David, we saw something unique that we didn't see before. The Bible says when we're introduced to David that the Spirit of God came and remained upon him so here is someone who is is, is it's not just that he has a heart after God but God's spirit is is in him and with him and he is suffering greatly that's good for us to realize the truth is we can all feel lost and struck and exhausted and even at times filled with hatred See, David causes us to be honest. He causes us to talk about things. I was thinking this week about, about 
if it weren't for all of these texts about David, I wonder how many things that relate to real life, that cause us to be honest about the way we feel sometimes and the way that we, we respond wrongly sometimes and the way that we're tempted sometimes, how many of those things we wouldn't talk about and we'd continue to pretend didn't exist if it weren't for David? David exposes so much about the common struggle of life. These are not necessary, necessarily lapses in faith, but they're part of faith. Allowing us to face the pain of our questions with honesty. See, you can't skirt around David's writing, especially in the Psalms. You can't skirt around it. It's why it's so beautiful and wonderful to, to, and applicable in so many arenas of life. It's why the Psalms are, are a text that, will, that comes up in the grieving and the hurting in, in, a, in funeral messages and times like that. Look at Psalm 139, one of David's greatest psalms. Notice what he says in these passages in verse 21 through 24. He says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. You have never sung a song based on that text. And the very next thing out of his mouth is, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see? And let me just tell you something. That's, if you can't relate to that, you, you're phony. That's real. That's somebody just being honest and and not worrying about who hears him not worrying about trying to put on pretense just being real just being real the bible and our lives agree the journey of faith we have in our journey of faith we have frequent peaks and valleys and there hang on there peaks and valleys and they're strung together with deserts and dry spells Therefore, doubt at times is unavoidable. It just is. Listen, if somebody tells me that they don't ever doubt, that there's not times of, of dryness and wonder, they're not being honest. That's not real. It's just not. The truth of the matter is, is that what you say when life is good and rosy and pleasant is, has, has no bearing on who you really are when it's coming apart at the seams and when your heart is being ripped out and shredded into a million pieces. It's a, it's a struggle. And, and sometimes, listen, when we, we just... We can't help but doubt. It doesn't mean that we doubt that God's real. It doesn't mean that we doubt that He exists. It, it means that we doubt things. Sometimes we doubt that. Or it may just be what we're doubting is that He loves us. Or that, you know, who knows? But our heart is fickle. And pain draws, just, you, you know, it rips the pretense away from us. So here's the question for tonight. 
Not is the valley coming, not will there be valleys. That's not the question. The question is, we've established the fact that, listen, if David is in this valley, then we might as well just buckle up, right? So what do we do in the valley? What do we do? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't reach back and try to recreate some time in the past the way it used to be on the mountaintop. You see, a lot of people have this false idea that the way to, the way to, to get through the valley is to, is to go back to some time in the past when things were really good and then try to recreate that. Well, all that is is self-imposed emotionalism, and it's only going to leave you frustrated, mired in guilt. It's not going to work. It's just emotionalism. Listen. If you came to David at this point in his life and you began to say, David, just remember, remember how it was when, when you were out in the, in the field watching over the, the flock and, 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 and defeating bears with your bare hands and how God was teaching you all those amazing things and building all that character in you. And why don't you just go back to that point in your life and remember how things were at that point in your life and... Well, here's the problem with that. And this is why this is ridiculous. David's not that person anymore. And you're not the person you were five years ago either. You're not the person you were a year ago. We're changing. And so we, we, you can't go back to something that was and then just, and just conjure it up in your heart and your mind and, 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 and make some warm and fuzzy feeling inside of you and think that that's going to carry you through the, the valley. It's not. It's not. You need, to, you need to seek, find, and grab hold of God where you are as who you are. That's what's important. So here's what you do. You realize that rather than trying to duplicate the feelings of an old faith, not trying to duplicate something that is old. I'm not saying that what was old is not good. I mean, I'm always talking about the value of remembering. Remembering is wonderful. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful principle in the Word of God. But remembering is different from trying to go back and recreate something or conjure something up or make ourselves feel good about something that happened in the past. No, here's what we do. The valley is the place where we're led to deepen our roots and to pursue the reason to keep going. You see, if you remove the valley from our lives, have you ever thought about the fact that there will be no reason for you to ask the really difficult questions. Without the valley, no one asks the question, well, why am I going to go on? If I say, to you, remember a few minutes ago when I was talking about doubt and you kind of were thinking to yourself, well, what do you mean? I mean, I... I don't doubt. I mean, I, I know. Okay. You know. How do you know? How do you know? 
Who do you know that knows? Let me tell you who knows. The only people that really know are the people who have been through the fire. Because if you haven't been through the fire, then you really don't know what you know. Because the only thing that's going to cause you to really dig deep inside and ask yourself, Do I really believe the things that I say I believe? Or when everything around you is crumbling to the ground? When your child is ripped away from you? Are you still going to worship the Lord? When you... Find out that your, uh, you know your your grandchild has a, an incurable disease. Are you still gonna worship the Lord when whatever it is that you hold so tightly to and value so highly begins to disintegrate before your eyes? Are you still going to place your faith in God? Are you still going to worship Him? Are you still going to be faithful to Him? Are you still going to... I mean, how do you know? You do not know apart from the fire. You see, there's great value in it. No one wants it. And I'm not about to stand here and say, well, yes, I mean, I want it so, it, so I can find those deep... Listen, it, it doesn't matter whether you want it or not. It's not going to change anything. God's sovereign. It's going to be what it's going to be. And that's the way it's going to be. The question is, what are you going to do? So here we have recorded for us the words of a weary warrior. My goodness, he lifts up his hands to God and declares his feelings in a song that's filled with this raw emotion and praise. You see, 2 Samuel 22, it, it is, in a sense... A lot of people think it's interchangeable with Psalm 18, but it's not interchangeable with Psalm 18. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. It's different. And it's a, it's a song that David, in this valley, in this pit, in this situation that I've described to you, this is, what he, this is his response to God. Look at how it begins. Look at what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. Who, who, who was this song to? David wasn't singing this song to uh, his servants, to people in the temple. To It might have been after this, but this song came from his heart, and it was to the Lord. On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Notice how Saul is separated from his enemies. It wasn't from the hand of Saul. It was his enemies and it was Saul. So we know this is later in David's life after he's become king. He's already experienced these things. And he says in verse 2, here's the first stanza. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. The God of my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. So we know there's violence in his life. 
I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Who shall I be saved? How sh- so shall I be saved from my enemies? When the waves of death surround me, the floods of the ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried out to God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken. Now listen to the symbolism here. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devoured fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also. And came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him. Dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice. He set out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me and drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place, and he delivered me because he delighted in me. Hmm. What, what, what do you think David is talking about when he's talking about the, the, the Lord bringing darkness like a canopy overhead and then thundering down like lightning? And He's, I believe, expressing the... the the help that God brought him in the drought and in the famine. That God made it rain. And, and David is merely just giving him praise for the fact that he opened up the skies and sent water from the heavens. But you can see that it starts out sort of like we're singing a hymn with all these verses that are based on all of these songs that we sing. They, so many of them are influenced by the great songwriter David but through it all then then he moves into all of this darkness and all of this struggle and 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 just tension and notice that there's no conflict for David between who God is and the depth of his suffering you see how those two things in David are not a problem for him I I want I want you to take note of that that David, in the midst of all this suffering, what he spells out in this first stanza is, is that he's suffering and that God's working, but the whole, this whole first stanza is a declaration of the fact that God is God. He's the Lord. He's in control. He's the rock, and he's my fortress, and he's my deliverer. Now, he, and David's not saying that, and he, he may not deliver me, but if I'm delivered, he's the deliverer. If we all die of starvation from the famine, then that's what happens. But if we're going to get saved from it, then God's going to do it. Remember how last week we said about grace, we said grace does not mean the consequences of sin are automatically removed? Remember that? That whole conversation? 
Remember how we said that what grace is, is it means that God in forgiving us allows us to live and gives us the strength to endure the consequences. Remember that? Now we're, being, we're able to see, we're able to look back and see what God taught us last week. And we're able to see David living these things out yet again right in front of us. That David, listen, things are not okay. But David knows that God is God and God is giving him the strength to endure. Now, do I know why there's a famine in the land for three years? No. Do you know why there's a famine in the land for three years? No. Does David know why there's a famine in the land for three years? No. But that doesn't change the reality that there's a famine. And that God's still God, even if people that David loves and is called to protect are dying and suffering. I mean, I don't know. He doesn't say this in the psalm. I'm just imagining that how would you feel if you were the king? Would you be... Uh, you know, walking up to the palace window, gazing out over the land, looking at all the misery and the suffering, looking at the, 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 the animals, you know, with all their bones showing and, and uh, you know, people starving in the streets and, you know, I don't know, children begging for food. I mean, what, would you want to see that? Well, of course you wouldn't. It's a, it's a terrible time. But God gives David the strength to endure it. And in the midst of our suffering, we said, his plan is still to prosper. He hasn't forgotten us. Now, verse 20, the end of the first stanza, which it's not really, I'm, these are places I broke the song up. Verse 20 says that he, God, David says, God brought me into a broad place. Now, what, what does that mean? That word broad, it means to an open space. It means God opened up the heavens and He sent help from above and He moved me into the clear. He helped me. He delivered me because why? He delighted in me. I wonder, I wonder how many of us in David's situation would believe that God delights in us. Or would it be true to say that the first place the doubt comes the first place the most likely place for us to begin to waver in the midst of great suffering is not is God real no we'll get to that later not is you know uh is everything that I believed a fairy tale no the first wave of doubt is going to be against does God love me? If He loves me, how many thousands of times have I heard roll off the lips of somebody's mouth? If He loves me, why is this happening to me? 
Well, there is a failure to understand grace. Grace is the strength to endure. He delivered me, David said, because he delighted in me. Second stanza, beginning in verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not, and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all of his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against the troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. You know, in the beginning of that stanza, as David's going through all those things, you, 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 do you think to yourself, wait a second now, David, you sound like you're getting a little boastful here. Like, whoa, we know your story, son. But it's not that at all because you see David shifts gears and he, he makes sure that we understand. He begins talking about how the Lord responds to us in 26 and 27. And then he says, you save the humble people, you're, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. You see, he's not boasting in himself. He's just talking about himself in the Lord. Now, at times, we flounder along in life trying to peer too far into the darkness ahead. We get, we get hung up on, you see, if, if we're not hung up on, well, God, how can you love me and all these things be happening, then this stanza begins to teach us that what happens is when, when we're in a valley, we get, all, we, we get all tangled up on trying to see further than we're supposed to see. We want to know things that we're not supposed to know. We ask questions that make perfect sense to us in a human world. What do we ask? We say, God, I can take it. Just tell me when it's going to end. Right? We want to know when the end is going to come. God, what... When is this going to end? Or God, what is going to happen? You see, if, if, the, if, if some terrible thing is looming in possibility and it hasn't begun yet, then the question is, well, God, where, does this, where is this going? 
If I know where it's going, then I can brace myself to get through it. That is a completely humanistic response. What do you mean? I thought grace was God giving us the strength to endure it, but we're turning around and saying, well, if I knew what it was going to be, I, I, I could find the strength to get through it. It's not about you. If I could see when is it going to end, then, Lord, I could get to the other side. Well, guess what? That's not how God works. Look at what David says. Verse 29, he says, You, Lord, are a lamp. You're a lamp. God is a lamp. He's not a spotlight. He's not a Q-beam. He's not a searchlight. He's a lamp. He's always a lamp. And he's never a searchlight, and he's never a spotlight because, because that's not good for us. You don't want God to be a searchlight. The last thing you want, let me, let me tell you something. And, and when I say this in this context, it won't mean much to you, but one day... This is going to land on you like a, like a giant anvil. One day, there's going to come a hospital room. There's going to come a funeral home. There's going to come a, a, a phone conversation that is going to forever change everything. Some of us in the room have already been down that road. And let me tell you something. It's the grace of God that you haven't known that that was coming. Because had you known what was coming down the road, you wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't be who you are. You wouldn't be doing what you are. Let me illustrate why God is a lamp and why we ought to be grateful that He's a lamp. And we ought to embrace the fact that he's a lamp. 25 years ago, I walked into that little building over there. And I walked in and I sat in the back. I'd never been in church before. You have all heard the story a hundred times. I, I listened to what he had to say. I looked around at these people that seemed to believe the things that they were hearing. The whole It's so vivid in my mind. But as the gospel began to work in my heart, as God began to draw me to him, let me tell you something. Then that moment, as the Spirit of God is drawing me to him, and I, I begin to feel something I never felt before, and I'm, I'm about to respond in a way I've never responded before. In that moment, had I known, had God said, and by the way, pal, you're going to pastor this church, I'd have ran out of the back door, ran down the street, never came back. The last thing I would have wanted to know was where all this was going to lead. It was just a lamp. All I knew is I'm a lost sinner in need of grace right now. I need God to save me right now. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything about what was next after that or after that or after that. Or after. And let me tell you something. It's a good thing I didn't. Because we certainly wouldn't be having this conversation right here right now. That never would have happened. That's why he's a lamp. 
He gives us just enough light so we can see what we need to see to take the next step. It's just one step. One step. You don't want to know the future. You think you do. And the reason we think we do is because we're relying upon ourselves. We are, we are relying upon our own strength, not the grace of God. And we think that if we know, if we get information, if we, if we figure things out, if we get answers, that somehow we're going to be able to, to, to endure. Listen. That's not going to give you what you need. That's all he gives because in reality, that's all we need. And truthfully, that's all we should want. But unfortunately, man, how do I know all this? Because it's, I, I live it. I mean, you don't think that I don't want to know? I think I want to know. You, you don't think that, that when I'm faced with a decision that's going to impact uh, five or six hundred people, all these families that I care so much about, God, I'm not sure. Should we do this or should we do that? Well, God, if you just tell me what's going to happen, then I would be sure to make the right decision. Everything would be fine. Doesn't that seem reasonable? Well, yeah, it seems reasonable in my flesh, but the truth is it doesn't work like that. It's a lamp. It's Tony, I'm only showing you enough to take the next step. And you're going to have to have faith. And you're going to have to trust. And that's the way he works. Third stanza. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back until the day that they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. So in this third stanza, David then brings us to another realization. His declaration here is that when our walk is weak, the Lord is our strength, our only strength. You see, he's God is, is looking back. I mean, David is looking back at how God has, has supplied his strength. So he's building on what we talked about in the second stanza, that he's just a lamp, that he's just a lamp, that we don't want to know, that we don't want to know. But here's what we do know. We do know when we look back what lay, what lay ahead, don't we? So see, today, in the moment, in the thing we're facing at the moment that we think we want to know, God, show me how long it'll last or what's going to happen. And God's just a lamp. But when we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, we're able to see the progression of things. We're able to look back and we're able to see now what I didn't know then, I know now looking back. And I see how God 
made provision for me, that he carried me, that he was the strength, that he was, he was actually making the, the ground, the path in front of my feet wider so that I wouldn't slip, David says. Notice from the big things, from his, his enemies and his battles and his adversaries, all the way down to widening the path so he wouldn't slip. Not only are those things that you don't know and I don't know, they're things we wouldn't even think of. We, we wouldn't even think of that. Because we don't, we're not paying attention to the little, but God's in the, in the tiny little details of where your foot's going and, and how your traction is and what's happening and who's engaging you and all of these things. You see, the truth is all of us, we all want to be strong. We want to be strong. That's what we want. And yet the scripture declares that God is strongest in us when we're admittedly weak. And the thing is, is that the same part of me that wants to ask ridiculous questions of God, like how long is this going to last or what's going to ultimately end up happening, that the spirit in me knows I don't even want the answer to and I'm not going to get the answer to. The same part of me that asks those questions is the same part of me that doesn't want to say I'm weak. It wants to say I'm strong. It wants to say I'm okay. It wants to say no, I got this. It wants to say I'm doing all right. But the God who is the lamp is the God who is strongest in you and strongest in me when we are admittedly weakest. And it is not intuitive. It is not the way that we are sort of crafted in our culture to think. No, it is the opposite. Weak. That's when God is at his strongest. Okay, fourth stanza. The last two verses of the song. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Hmm. Now, what do we learn by the way this song ends? From the circumstances we know that led into it, from what we've learned from the three previous stanzas that have preceded it, for it to end with these two passages of Scripture, this to me is shocking and convicting. That despite all that David has been through, he's not bitter or resentful. I want to ask you a question. Who do you know who today, right now, today, is not in church doesn't come to church, doesn't walk with God. And the reason that they don't, you know them. The reason that they don't is because 
20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, some tragic event happened in their life. And because of that tragic event, they will say to you all these decades later, I know a dozen people right now whose families sit in this fellowship week in and week out and they never come, they never dawn the doors and the reason they don't is because somewhere back in time some horrible thing happened to their mom or their sister or their whatever the situation is and they can't imagine how God could allow that to happen. And they don't come to church. And I know that, that many of you in the room, you know somebody that would fall right into that category. And yet, here's David. Whatever happened to them, whatever happened to them, horrible as it may be, it's not worse than everything you can stack up on David. I guarantee you that. And yet, he's not bitter. He's not resentful. He even says to God that, God, you show mercy. You know who he's talking about, right? David hasn't forgotten that he was the one whose head was anointed that day by the priest. You've been merciful. Merciful? Yes, merciful. You see... We can look back at the end of our lives and realize our Lord is a great and awesome God, even and especially in all of our regrets and pain. It's even, but I say especially in our regrets and pain, in our, in our suffering, that this is how we know. If life is just easy and everything goes the way you think it ought to go, then I don't think you can say that God is your rock and your fortress. How can you say that? You don't even know what a rock and a fortress is. You got to get beat around a little bit to know what that is. You got to hurt. You got to stumble. You got to fall. You got to struggle. I spent a lot of years of my life trying to get this truth through the heads of little church going teenagers. Think they got it all figured out. You hang around long enough, you watch enough generations come by, and you begin to realize that until the real suffering comes, the jury's out. I'm glad. I'm glad that you think the things you think, and I'm glad that you say the things you say, but the jury's out. Because let me tell you something, as long as you're tiptoeing through the tulips and mommy and daddy are taking care of all your problems and the biggest calamity that's going on in your life is whether or not you're going to pass biology, you don't know what a rock and a fortress are. 
But hopefully, the things that are in your heart are genuine so that when that day comes, He is your rock and your fortress. But until they come, you see, that's what, what we're doing in, in our children and student ministry is we're devoting all of our time to preparing children. We're, we're just preparing them for this moment. We're preparing them to have a rock and a fortress. That's what we're doing. And as parents, we're protecting them from needing a rock and a fortress as long as we can, but then it comes. And it's then, and only then, that all of these things come to fruition. Why does the... Why does the Scripture tell us multiple times to recall the truth to ourselves? Not to go back to some moment in time, not to go back to some old faith and some old situation from some old installation of our lives. No, I'm talking about the truth of God that never changes. It's always right. It's always fresh and always appropriate in every circumstance and situation why do we recall the truth to ourselves why do we do that why are we in here right now as a hundred and something children are over there in the east wing memorizing scripture why do we do that why just so that we 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 want them to memorize it because we think it's important or we think why what is the specific reason why because every one of us, every one of us is a forgetter. We're forgetters. That's who we are. And you remember when I talked about David and Bathsheba, before we ever got into that, I talked about the fact that when I look at that scene in Scripture, what scares me to death is the fact that David lost his urgency. Remember that conversation? This is why you have to know that you're a forgetter. You, you need to embrace that you're a forgetter. You need to uh, own that you're a forgetter and you need to stay always consciously aware of your capacity in the flesh to forget because if you do you will stay urgent you will understand you will recognize that there is uh, danger at hand because in a frantic moment or during a long season of pain, we're going to enter this fog that dims the ultimate truth of our beloved status in Him. Remember what I said would be the first, the, the first pillar that was going to get knocked over by our suffering is going to be, does He love me? How could He love me and this be happening? See, every person... I can see it in your faces. Every one of you in this room that has been acquainted with grief and suffering, you know. You're like, that is the, so true. 
And you're thinking, I'm, I didn't tell anybody that, but man, I thought it. Oh, this hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. And in, those, in, that, in that frantic moment, when that wave of emotion hits you, when you just find out something that you just, boom, you're hit with it. And you're trying to reel. And, you know, and people say, oh, well, I looked at you and you looked like you were in shock. Yeah, I was in shock. I was in this fog, and it was dimming this ultimate reality of my status in Him. So here's the principle for forgetters that stay urgent. You are your own best preacher, and your pulpit is you. There you go. Sorry. Your pulpit is you. We get in the fog, we lose our status, and then we're our own best preacher, and your pulpit is you. You see, I have to preach all these messages to myself before I can share them with anybody else. You should pray for me. Round and round I go, preaching them to myself over and over and over. And imagining... As I'm preaching them to myself and I'm responding to the truth that I'm preaching to myself, then I'm analyzing how I'm responding and then I'm thinking about you and I'm imagining how you're responding. I'll let you in on a little Sunday night secret. Don't tell the Sunday morning crowd. People come up to me all the time, they go, It's like you know what I'm thinking. No, I know what I'm thinking, dummy. That's how I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I don't know. God knows. Your pulpit is you. So, by the way, write down in the margin next to your pulpit is you. Write down 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Eight and nine. That's a, a, a beautiful place in the New Testament where the Scripture talks about forgetting who we are and not, not preaching the gospel to ourselves. And it says we'll become uh, unfruitful in doing so and forgetful. We're all forgetters. So here's the... Sort of just the culmination of everything we've said. At the very bottom of ourselves, when there's no tangible help and no one else, we must be reminded of what we are. I wish that we could just Stay here for two more hours tonight and we could just take a moment and let some folks in this room come up here and grab the microphone and say, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what I've been through. Let me tell you about my journey. 
Let me tell you how I know that God is my rock and my fortress. And they will tell you. They'll say, you need to stay urgent. Because in that moment, or in those moments, had those things not been implanted inside of them, if, if, it, if, if there hadn't have been recall over and over and over in preparation for this time, Usually in life, it's, it's a little suffering here and a little suffering there. And, it's, and it, it's, it's, it's the grace of God preparing us. But not always. Sometimes, sometimes you have to go from zero to a hundred in one foul swoop. But either way, if you know that you're your own best preacher and your pulpit is you, you'll be reminded of who we are. And who are we? I'm loved. I'm loved. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Why couldn't it have been me instead of you? This drought, people dying, starvation. And then on top of all that, here we go again. Another battle with the Philistines. I'm tired. I don't have any strength left in me. I'm weary. But God, through it all, I don't know why. Listen. Why is not going to change anything? I don't know when it's going to end. That's not going to change anything. I don't know what's going to happen. That's not going to change anything. But if you know in that moment that you are loved, it's going to change everything. Everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank